Good morning. Let me try that again. Well, good morning. Good. I often uh, bring a pile of notes here when I come up to preach, and they're usually in order. Um, but I often found in the past that there are people who stare at the number of pages that I have in this little notebook, thinking that that correlates to the length of the message. Um, it doesn't at all. I'm, uh, I'm just, those are all my notes, and I, I, I spend so much time and, frankly, joy uh, preparing for a message. And it's one of the great um, encouragements in my life, and I'm so thankful to be able to share the Word of God with you over the next uh, many months uh, as the church goes through this transition. My name is David Roseberry. Um, I've been a priest in our tradition for 40 years, and for 30 of those years, I was the founding rector of Christ Church in Plano, and uh, my wife and I and our four children and now five grandchildren consider those years, well, I consider them to be fantastic years, and um, our, our family loves the church. My son is a priest. Um, we, we, this has just been a part of our life. And when your bishop, Bishop Alan Hawkins, called me and um, invited me to consider coming out here and being this auspicious title, priest in charge, um, I jumped at the chance. Partly because I know this church. I know its reputation. I know its eagerness and its hunger for the gospel. I know its commitment. I even in this time of transition, I see lots of people who are volunteering, rolling up their sleeves, getting involved in the life of this church, and it is so encouraging for me. So um, I'll be with you for the months ahead, and we'll see. And my prayer is that the search committee will continue their process and, and it, draw it to a logical conclusion at some point in the near term. Um, we pray for them. But uh, for us, we'll continue to meet as the Bible encourages us, Hebrews 13. Uh, don't give up. Keep coming. Keep enjoying the fellowship of this place. And when we get here, I will, I, when I'm preaching, there'll be other people as well. We will always open up the scriptures. That's the source document that all of us use to teach and preach the word of God. So I want to begin by uh, telling you the story that we just read. is a, It's a, an amazing passage. It's what I would call the continental divide of the scriptures. You know what a continental divide is, right? But I don't know, 800 miles to the west, if you're traveling along Interstate 10, headed out toward Arizona and California, you're going to see a sign that says continental divide. And you're, it's barely perceptible at Interstate 10 because there isn't that much pitch to the land, but the theory is that this is where the continent divides itself into east and west, presumably a drop of water falling on the west side of the continental divide will find its way into the Pacific Ocean, and one uh, dropping on the east side of the continental divide will find its way into the Mississippi and, you know, head out east. 
That's what this passage is. Jesus pulls his disciples on a retreat, and they go to the northernmost spot that they've ever, ever been in Israel. And it's this place that you might, you might refer to it, I think, accurately as like a Las Vegas. There were lots of, of uh, shrines and statues and centers, I'll just be delicate, centers of pleasure up in this area. And Jesus chooses that as the spot to come up and say, who do people say that I am? And the dialogue that ensued really defined not only Jesus' ministry, but the ministry and leadership of the church for the the next 2,000 years. But it also meant that from that point forward, Jesus would be on his way to Jerusalem. Enough teaching, enough miracles, enough arguments with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. From this point forward, it's been up and up and up and uphill to this continental divide moment, and now on the way on the other side, headed to the cross. So it's a significant passage. And when we get to it, we, we, we have to slow down. That's, this is what I love to do about Scripture. I just love to take a piece and slowly, deeply slice it and understand what is going on in this passage. And I think we'll find, God willing, that the deeper dive we take, the clearer everything becomes. So Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And I want you to just trust me on this. I don't want to spend a lot of time proving the point, but Jesus is not a politician. He's not got his finger in the air trying to figure out, well, what do these people think about me? He's not um, in marketing. He's not trying to figure out if his brand is going forward or not. It's actually a question that he wants to dispense with so we can get to the real question, which I'll tell you in just a moment. But so he says, well, so what do people think about me? And... and uh, who do, who do they say the Son of Man is? And you know what, um, what the disciples say was, well, we got, we've heard a lot. We've heard um, there's um, John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Those are all people that pointed to Jesus. They and people understood that there, were, there was a coming Messiah. He would come. But Jesus isn't happy with those answers. In fact, it may be just a setup for the disciples to address themselves to the real question, which is, okay, who do you say that I am? And what... Peter says is probably the, the most theologically weighty, word for word, theologically heavy sentence in the scripture. Because what he says is, well, y- you are the Christ, the Messiah. 
the son of the living God. Now, that's a, it, it sounds so easy to say, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. But I want you to see how packed that is because what, what he's saying is that you're the one we've been waiting for. Peter was a Jew. He understood exactly what the Messiah was about. And he understood that Jesus came and filled that, identified himself with that human form of the Messiah, the leader, the one that would be the savior, the one that would rally the people to a new kind of kingdom. But then he says, you're, and he adds to this statement, the son of the living God. Do you see in that single sentence the two natures of Jesus right there, right next to each other? That Jesus is being described by Peter as the Messiah, uh, the Christ, the one we've been waiting for, this human figure to rescue Israel and then he tacks on the son of the living God. What I'd like to do is just spend a little time talking about that last part. The son of the living God. A couple of um, months ago, my wife and I celebrated a significant anniversary for us. 40 years of marriage. And dutifully, we went to a really nice restaurant and ordered a, I ordered a really nice steak. But have you noticed something about restaurants with, that have a really high price tag? The more you pay, the littler it gets. You know, you think for, I think it was $75, uh, I'd get a huge steak. But no, the, 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 the server came and said, well, that's our, our, our filet, that's our baseball cut. What's that? What's the size of a baseball? And I'm thinking, $75 for a size of a baseball? I ordered it. I wasn't going to be cheap on, you know, our anniversary. So he goes, and he brings it back in, I don't know, 10 minutes, 10, 15 minutes. And it's actually not a baseball size. It's a golf ball size. <laughs> so I just started slicing it, and it was as rich wonderful, delightful filling as I could have imagined. That's what I'd like to do with this passage. You just take it and get down into the weeds about what is Peter talking about? The son of the living God. How did he know that Jesus was the son of the living God? Where did he pick that up? And all we need to do is go back into the first day of ministry of Jesus in the town called Capernaum in the Gospel of Mark. And Peter had just been called to follow Jesus. And what Peter saw that day was everything that Jesus could do. I made a list here because I've studied this passage deeply. He followed Jesus, and the first thing they do is they go right into the synagogue. 
Jesus is confident enough to enter without being invited. It's like, like he owns the place. And then he preaches uh, the gospel of the kingdom in the synagogue. He's spiritually, Jesus is spiritually attuned that there's a man there who has a, 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 an evil spirit. He's a demon-possessed man. And Jesus is strong enough spiritually to confront him and chase the demon out. He's physically able, Jesus, then to go over to Simon Peter's house and heal his mother-in-law, touch her gently that the fever would leave. And then Peter sees that Jesus is then durable enough to spend the rest of the afternoon and into the evening healing scores and scores of people who come, both who had diseases and and who were also demon-possessed. And then Jesus was tireless enough that he went to pray. He left early in the morning, up before dawn, and he goes out and he prays by himself. He was compassionate enough to heal one more person, the leper, on his way out of town. And this was the first day of Jesus' ministry. And Peter saw it all. And he concludes, rightly, that this man, Jesus, was the son of the living God. That there was an identity about him that was human, of course. He was the human, the desired Messiah. But he was also this force of God. This is one of those things that the scripture takes great pains to show us that Jesus is not just a guy, not just part of the band of do-gooders, not just a preacher, but there is a divinity in him and he is able to do things that are vastly different than anyone has ever done. And I think we tend to forget that. The stories are told about this human Jesus doing his thing in the New Testament, but we need to understand what Peter experienced. He came back and said, you are the son of the living God. Yesterday, I was doing some errands with my wife. We're driving around and... um, Stopped at a stoplight and looked next to me, and there is, my wife said, look at that car. And it was a McLaren, okay? $350,000 automobile. And I said to Fran, that, that's a McLaren. That's $350,000. And she said, they're on the same road we are. And a lot, I think a lot of people look at the life of Jesus and say, well, he's just, he's like everyone else, only more so. He's got greater gifts, greater abilities, greater, great, greater strength, greater durability. But this is not what Peter experienced. All of that is true, but there was something about Jesus that was 
different than any other man. Let me tell you something. I, you probably have never thought about this before. But do you know that Jesus never prayed with his disciples? He prayed to God constantly. That was such a connection between he and his father. But that was almost, that was never experienced by the disciples. They never had prayer time together. Jesus prayed and the disciples always are thought of as being or described as being over there. He is in the midst of his disciple, but he's not what we would call today praying with them. Let me just read a couple passages. In the morning, while it was still very dark, he got up and went to a, out to a deserted place, and there he prayed. Jesus prays by himself. Now, during those days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and he spent the night in prayer to God. Also, about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and went up to the mountain and prayed. And Jesus went to pray separately and then brought the disciples to him later. Over and over and over again, you find that there is a uniqueness about Jesus that's different than any person we have ever known. Jesus went with his disciples to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? And he said to them, sit here while I go pray there. Pray with me, but you pray over here. I'm going to go over here. That's the nature of the relationship that Jesus had with his father. And Peter knew it. Peter was able to say, you are the Christ, the one we've been hoping for, expecting, and you're God, your son of the living God. And so Jesus hears this and immediately says to Peter, Peter, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. You just didn't figure this out. It was revealed by my Father in heaven. This is something that God showed you himself. Peter never forgot that moment because he understood this, this not balance, but this these two natures fused into a single person. He understood it. He would forget it from time to time. But he'd have to come back and repent and remember. So, what's this mean? This idea that Peter sees that Jesus is both man and God... And that Jesus says, yeah, but you didn't figure that out on your own. God revealed it to you. What, is, what does that actually mean for us? 
Well, let me just give you a couple of thoughts. Jesus then tells Peter and all the disciples, he strictly charged them not to tell anyone about this. Don't say a word. And do you want to know why? It's because Peter was, you can't talk to somebody. You can't persuade somebody into the faith. You can present your faith. You can share your testimony, and we should. But you can't argue somebody into the faith. The faith is something that is revealed to a person like it was shown to Peter. And it's shown to many of you. And if you and I would go back to those moments when we first said, I get it, something happened to you and to me. I can describe it. Where we finally understood that God was not only real, but he was personal. I didn't figure it out. I didn't add it up. I was shown this by my Father in heaven. Pascal said, no man can truly convince another by argument. That can only come by revelation. And whatever faith that you have has been revealed to you. You know the story about C.S. Lewis, how he came to faith? I mean, what a great intellect he was. Massive intellect. And all kinds of people were trying to get him to believe. And he was resistant. He'd heard all the arguments before, but you can't fool somebody like C.S. Lewis. And one day, I can't remember exactly the, the setting, but he was being driven to a zoo on a Sunday morning. This is what he, this is what he said. I was driven to uh, Whipsnade one sunny morning. When we set out toward that journey, I did not believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. And when we reached the zoo, I did. Yet I had not exactly spent the night, uh, the, the, the journey in thought, nor in great emotion, it was more like when a man, after a long sleep, lies motionless in bed, then now becomes aware that he is awake. It's something God does. To bring people, we should, as we all would want, we should bring people to him. We should lead others to consider God for themselves. But present him as he is. Not affirming this or that and not trying to prove that he's a Republican or a Democrat or attempt to, to this is, uh, compel people to accept our view of him. But only to let them see the Lord. That's all we're called to do. Your task, if I may be so bold, from this scripture 
is not to win arguments with people. Your task is actually to remove scales from the eyes. Let people see Jesus for themselves. I wonder, so I don't know you, and over the next couple of months, God willing, I'll come to know many, many of you. And you don't know me. And I hope over the next couple of months, you will come to know me. So I don't know whether these comments of mine are too much, offensive, or not enough. But I want to share with you what I think this scripture is calling us to think about individually for each person. That there may be people in this room, well, in fact, I know there are, who are on the edge of faith. They don't know what is next for them, but they have some questions. And they step away, they step back from commitment because they've got all kinds of questions they want to address. And this passage would tell us that that's probably not the best way forward. The way forward for anyone who has doubts and concerns and questions is simply to follow. And over time, the Lord has a way of either dialing down the significance of those questions or giving you the answer that's deeply satisfying. I don't know if that describes you or not. If you stand on the edge and of faith and look back, I think we could be like Peter in a way. You know, when he was first called, Jesus went to him, and this is John chapter 1, Jesus went to him and said, um, you are Simon, son of John. I'm going to call you Peter, the rock. It's like Jesus had his number. At his, he knew him. He said, in, in effect, I know you, Peter, Simon. I know your father. I know your name. And I know something about you that's going to happen. You're going to be the rock. Peter had never had anybody talk to him like that. And so Peter followed. He listened to Jesus' teaching. He heard the great ideals he presented. He watched his abilities. He watched the evil forces that came after them dissipate. He watched Jesus and came to close personal touch. He felt what we could describe as grace and truth from Jesus, a tenderness and thunder at the same time, that his life was full of love and light, full of compassion and passion. And then Peter followed. 
And step by step, Peter came to understand that this man was also the son of the living God. Wow. Let me close with this quote by pastor, um, writer, preacher, A.C. Dixon from a previous era. All the questionings of today, all the fears and doubts of the heart, all the longing and complainings of now will be answered in the future revelations of God. When we shall see as we are seen and we know as we are known, then faith will be lost in sight and hope will be changed to fruition. Then in his light, we shall see light and in his love, we will rest satisfied. So my encouragement, if you are sitting on the fence, thinking about faith, if you're wondering how to bring people to a deeper knowledge of who he is, simply follow. He will prove himself to you. And when he asks you, who do you say that I am? You will say, you will know to say with confidence, you're the Christ, the Messiah, the one I've been waiting for. And you are also the son of the living God. So Father, thank you for this amazing passage, this watershed moment in the life of Jesus and the church. And I pray that my brothers and sisters, newfound friends that we we haven't met yet, that we might take this into our heart and become men and women who follow deeply and obediently your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.